Foreign Minister Joseph Wu is on a trip to Europe, striking many friendly deals along the way. Natalie speaks with chairman of the Lithuanian Parliament's Taiwan Friendship Group, Matas Maldekis, about how he wants to impact EU ties with Taiwan. Then in Hashtag Taiwan, Leslie talks about the Taiwan episode of Last Week Tonight and speaks with Jenna Lynn Cody who petitioned for the episode months ago. Finally, Stash covers Taiwan's potential plans to ease quarantine restrictions. This is Taiwan Insider. There's been a lot of great news about EU-Taiwan ties lately. Foreign Minister Joseph Wu is on a rare, high-profile trip to Europe. Let's take a look at this report. Two old friends meet again. Foreign Minister Joseph Wu was in the Czech Republic this week, meeting Czech Senate President Milos Vistrichil. After holding talks, Wu and Vistrichil gave a joint press conference. Wu says Taiwan is facing growing pressure from China. Uh, and under these kinds of circumstances, uh, there are several things uh, we have been doing and we will try uh, to do again and again. Uh, the first is to beef up our defense capabilities. And the second is we try to make friends around the world so that Taiwan is not alone. Japanese media paid particularly close attention to Wu's movements in Prague, even capturing the moment Wu and Vistrichil took a selfie together. Aside from his visit to the Czech Senate, Wu also gave a keynote address at the Czech Academy of Sciences, alongside representatives of the Czech think tank Synopsis. Wu drew parallels between the present-day situation with China and the policy of appeasement towards the Nazis before the Second World War. Wu says, in the face of authoritarianism, dictatorship and military expansion, Global democracies should be firm in their will to actively defend their shared values of freedom, democracy, human rights and the rule of law. Meanwhile, U.S. media company Politico is reporting that Wu will take part in a covert trip to Brussels to meet with EU officials. For now, that trip is officially off the record and it's not clear who Wu will meet. Nonetheless, it's set to be a big week for Taiwan's efforts to foster closer ties with Europe. A 66-member trade delegation from Taiwan has also been visiting Slovakia, the Czech Republic and Lithuania and signing many deals in trade and technology. Last week, the EU Parliament also passed its first report calling for closer ties with Taiwan. And Lithuania says it's welcoming the opening of a Taiwanese representative office this year. That's despite economic and diplomatic sanctions from Beijing. Lithuania is the first European country to stand up to Beijing in this way. Now, I spoke with the head of the Taiwan Friendship Group in the Lithuanian Parliament, Matas Maldekis, who is coming to Taiwan in December, leading a delegation of Lithuanian lawmakers here. I asked him what kind of impact he thinks Lithuania is having on EU-Taiwan ties. We made European institutions, or everybody in Europe, talk about what's going on in Taiwan. We see a big shift in European Union. Now we see a shift in European Union institutions. If you are talking about European Parliament, more and more countries see we should have a relationship with Taiwan because it's good economically and it's good because of security questions. We should help the countries that want to go democratical way. The voice of Taiwan is being heard more and more in Europe. That's good. 
That's great. Well, you know, we're very grateful to Lithuania for standing up for Taiwan. And the report passed, you know, in a landslide vote. But I'm curious what you think will be the change as a result of that report, because none of the recommendations are, are binding. Mm -hmm. do you, what kind of changes do you think that we'll be seeing in EU relations with Taiwan? Well, this is resolution, but it's like, you know, it's one more little drop that you have to uh, look in the long time perspective. And if you look at the long time perspective, it's a, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. We, uh, relation, when we are talking about relationship with Taiwan, we have to understand that it's got to do a lot of relationship within European Union countries and China. Because more and more countries in European Union see China as a threat. And then seeing China as a threat, they started seeing the relationship, what's going on, uh, what China is doing uh, re regarding their neighbors uh, and what they are doing uh, regarding the countries around them. And they start to see that in another perspective. And this resolution, you have to understand, European Parliament is consists of all the political parties from all European Union countries. That means that in a political spectrum, in the political parties in European Union, Taiwan question become more important and they have absolutely clear position what should it be. In few years we will see the change, uh, I can guarantee you, if we will see the dynamics what we have now, that we will change in interpolitics. And then the interpolitics between the European Union countries, their relationship with Taiwan will, will start to change also. This is the dynamics of European Union politics. You know, the Taiwanese are very grateful. Uh, you know, Taiwanese have been buying a lot of Lithuanian goods, over 90 million US dollars. I recently went to a Lithuanian chocolate <laughs> store. That's we nice. Ruta chocolate is delicious. My favorite is the coffee bean chocolate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, Very nice. yeah, what is, what is your hope for uh, trade relations um, with Taiwan? Mm -hmm. I know you're coming here in December. What would you like to achieve? Yeah. yeah. Uh, what is my vision? What is my mission? Mm -hmm. To be an example. To be an example for, because what we are doing here, it's not only about uh, Taiwan and Lithuania. What we are doing here is about Taiwan and European Union. My dream is to show that, you know, uh, 23 million uh, highly educated, rich country who is very high on the technologies and who is democracy, it's much better to deal than the country who is authoritarian and pressing you and dealing with that, you don't have sovereignty. You don't have rule of law. And if you have a business there that, and you, if you're doing something that they don't like, you'll be dead in the water. You'll have big problems. So that means you are losing your sovereignty. We don't want that. We want to show that if we can make a good example of relationship economically between Lithuania and Taiwan, uh, believe me, uh, other countries will follow. I have a lot of interviews from Netherlands, from other countries. They are all watching. They, they try to understand dynamics, what's going on between Lithuania and Taiwan, because they, they understand that if it is a success story, that means those success story can be repeated elsewhere. I can't tell you how grateful we are for Lithuania. I've met people on the street who are wearing Lithuanian masks. Yeah, you know, so, people yeah. are buying your goods left and right. I think people in Taiwan will do whatever they can uh, to express their gratitude. One man brought 20,000 
Andy Dollars worth of Lithuanian chocolate when you sent 20,000 vaccines to Taiwan. Yeah. So, you know, people in Taiwan, are, yeah, very grateful. To hear those stories is like for our countries, you know, uh, understanding that being not a big country, we can somehow, we can, you know, uh, make a difference is a big deal for us. Believe, uh, believe me. Maldekas also has a special message for Taiwan, all that and more in the full interview, which will be up on YouTube and Facebook. Next up, in Hashtag Taiwan, Leslie gives us a Taiwan response to being the topic of John Oliver's Last Week Tonight. Last Week Tonight is a weekly news show that airs on HBO, which covers hard-hitting topics with a satirical edge. Every week, it garners millions of hits on YouTube, and it's won dozens of major television awards. Now, last Sunday, show host John Oliver delivered a 20-minute piece about Taiwan. He talked about Taiwan's tense political situation and covered some vital history. In two days, the segment has garnered close to 4 million views. But even months before that, there was a petition calling for John Oliver to do a segment on Taiwan already. Now, I spoke with Jenna Lynn Cody, author of the Lauren Cha blog and creator of the petition, to get her thoughts on how that segment did and how well John Oliver covered his topics. I want to know, um, don't water this down for me, how ecstatic were you when you saw that episode happen? I saw so a friend mention, like, just sent me a message saying, oh my god, he's doing it. And I started shouting to my husband, now, 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 he's actually doing it, you know? I spent those few minutes just sort of riveted to my couch, but we watched it again later that evening. And um, I, I had to get up and walk around. I was so excited. Was it everything you imagined, or did it leave something to be desired? Did he hit all the points? Sure. I mean... Uh, I was really pleased with the piece, so I think it was done really competently, and I mean, to be frank, it was more than I expected. The overall messaging that the Taiwanese people should get to decide their own fate, and that the way that Taiwan is treated so weirdly by the international community, they were so eloquent and they really hit the messaging spot on. Did it have everything I would have liked? No. But nothing is perfect, you know. You're never going to have that perfect segment in your mind. Uh, one example is, I don't care about John Cena, but I see why they went with that. I mean, I think that's a um, commercial decision. People in America know who that guy is, and it, it matters. I Overall, I was really, really, really pleased with it. Um, I thought the history lesson was useful and accurate. And I was thrilled to see them use a clip from Karis Templeman because he's just very clear and explains a complex subject extremely well. I'm sure now that a lot of people who maybe didn't have a lot of reason to know about Taiwan before, you know, they weren't necessarily going to watch an interview with President Tsai on CNN, but they'll tune into John Oliver. And those are kind of the people, the mainstreamers that... I wanted to reach and we did that with the right message. Was there a moment in time where you were watching John Oliver's show and you're just like, he's the guy. He's 100% the guy to tackle this topic. I was up late one night, two, three in the morning, thinking about this Taiwan bubble. All of us who write about Taiwan were read by people who already care about Taiwan. So I thought, who could reach a more mainstream audience who doesn't already have a reason to care, who can handle sensitive and difficult topics in a fun, digestible way that people will watch? And I thought, oh, well, John Oliver. And he's already talked about these other issues in the region and done 
what I thought was a very good and competent job. And it didn't start with a petition, it started with a Facebook page. Um, and the idea of that was to use the name of the page to comment on their social media. Jenna Cody commenting on last week tonight, nobody cares. But a page called John Oliver Should Do an Episode About Taiwan commenting on last week tonight, somebody might notice that. Run me through the process of uh, like starting the petition. I'm sure there's a lot of varying opinions, especially with uh, an issue as complex and as multi-layered as Taiwan. Honestly, huge support. There were some detractors. A few people thought it was helpful to voice their opinion on John Oliver's show, saying, oh, I don't like John Oliver, I think he's insufferable, or I just don't care for it. And my reaction to that was, who cares? The point was to get Taiwan in front of the mainstream, mostly liberal audience that he attracts. I think the way he approaches issues is fine. I think that he understands there is an establishment and he has to work not within it per se, but he's a, he criticizes it and that's good enough for me. You got John Oliver's attention. He so. made the episode. What's next for you? Who's the next uh, person that you'd hope would make a segment on Taiwan? I don't know. Um, first, I would like to say I don't know that the petition made a difference, but I do note that the timing is quite conspicuous. However, uh, Last Week Tonight does have a Taiwanese-American producer and a writer who used to live in Taiwan. In any case, as for what's next, I'm not sure. Certainly, um, the other comedy news, you know, big guys, Trevor Noah, Stephen Colbert, have not covered the region to my satisfaction. And I'd rather someone who's not able to do it competently not do it at all. My goal here is specifically to reach liberals because a lot of discourse on Taiwan in the US is taken over by conservatives and I do want Taiwan to be a bipartisan issue. I'm not saying I don't want that support, but it makes it seem like Taiwan is a right-wing issue which might turn lefties or, you know, liberals against Taiwan and I certainly don't want that. A longer, more complete version of my interview with Jenna will be up on Facebook and YouTube. We talk about how she deals with internet trolls and why she's so invested in talking about Taiwan. Next up, Stash is going to take a look at potential plans to ease quarantine restrictions in Taiwan. When will Taiwan open up its borders? Well, that's a difficult question with a lot of answers depending on what you define as open and who those borders might be open to. Health Minister Chen Shijong says health authorities won't consider relaxing quarantine rules until 70% of the population has had one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine, with at least 60% fully vaccinated. So when will that be? Well, Taiwan is already at 70% with one dose, so that target gets a tick. But right now, only 30% of people are fully vaccinated. The government says it will work towards reaching 60% by the end of the year. Is that realistic? Well, in the month of October, the percentage of people fully vaccinated has gone from 12% to 30%. At that rate, Taiwan's population could hit its target of getting 60% of people fully vaccinated in about 45 days, or a month and a half. So that puts us somewhere in mid-December. But bear in mind, that's just a ballpark estimate that assumes that the rate of second vaccination stays constant, which might not be the case. So far, Health Minister Chen Shizong has stayed tight-lipped about what changes could come in, but it looks like something is going to have to give when it comes to Lunar New Year. 
Chen says at least 31,000 people are set to come back to Taiwan at the end of January to celebrate the holiday with their families. The problem is, quarantine facilities are already almost at capacity. So where do people quarantine if everywhere is booked up? Well, health authorities say they're looking into a few different alternatives. One would be to allow some form of home quarantine. Another would be to shorten the quarantine period. The third option would be to waive quarantine entirely for certain travellers. And the final option authorities are discussing is issuing a temporary ban on entry for certain foreigners to free up space for returning Taiwanese. Chen says authorities are more likely to shorten the quarantine period or waive the quarantine requirement after the Lunar New Year. Now, the Central Epidemic Command Centre is due to give its report on the Lunar New Year in the next week or so. So, till then, we'll just have to wait and see. And before we leave you, here's a look at some of the other news stories that are on our radar. President Tsai Ing-wen has confirmed the presence of U.S. troops on Taiwan. That came during an interview with CNN recorded on Tuesday. Tsai said that the troops were on Taiwan to help train Taiwan's military. She did not give any details about troop numbers, however, saying only that there were, quote, not as many as people thought. The last U.S. troops officially in Taiwan left in 1979, and Tsai is the first Taiwanese president since then to acknowledge a U.S. presence on the island. Legislator Chen Bowei of the Taiwan State Building Party has become the first lawmaker in Taiwan's history to lose a recall vote. Chen was elected last year by a razor-thin margin, and he lost the recall vote by a similarly thin margin of just around 4,400 votes. And with the dust of that political battle not yet settled, Taiwan's two main political camps are already gearing up for another showdown, a referendum vote in December consisting of four questions. Voters will be asked about protecting algae reefs in Taoyuan against industrial contamination, banning imports of pork containing traces of the feed additive ractopamine, restarting the fourth nuclear power plant project, and overturning an earlier law separating referendums and general elections. And we're back in the studio for our final question of the day. Now, I'm going to pose a question to my co-hosts. Guys, you saw the uh, hashtag where we went over the John Oliver skit, and that was a long time coming. And I was thinking, you know what, that's the power of the people's voice, right? <laughs> so I'd like you to voice your opinion. Which celebrity would you like to cover Taiwan next? Stash. Well, I think uh, I would like to see uh, John Cena do something. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, it will be an interesting turn of events. Oh. He obviously has some command of Chinese, so, you know, he could, uh, he could do some uh, interesting research. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think I'd like to see his take. I can't believe you did that. <laughs> wow. Okay, that's gutsy. Uh, Natalie? Okay, so I actually like to see Trevor Noah do a take on Taiwan. Oh, yeah. He actually took Taiwan off a map of China before. Oh, did he? So oh, yeah. it'd be cool if he did a whole show on Taiwan. He's actually pretty funny too. And he's, he's, pretty, he's funny. He's pretty good with uh, he's like in the he's same vein as John with Oliver. Politics and, and he's and good everything. with news too, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, for me, I think uh, Stash and I, we like um, big, muscular, funny men. <laughs> I'm going with Terry Crews. Terry Crews. Mostly because uh, I'm a huge Terry Crews fan, <laughs> and I just want to hang out with him. I hope if he comes to Taiwan, we can take him around. Is he coming to Taiwan? I don't know. I don't think so. Okay. Do the Din Tai Fung. Well, at least he knows he's invited now. Yeah. We're he's all a, dreaming here, yeah, right? He's got a fun <laughs> personality, and I think he's a great advocate for Taiwan. I think he'd love it. I think he'd love Taiwan if we <laughs> showed him around. And uh, you know what? Let us know who your celebrity picks are of who you wish would cover Taiwan next. Anyway, that just about does it for our show this week. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Leslie Liao. I'm Stash Butler. And I'm Natalie So. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can catch us on Facebook and YouTube. 
Yes, leave a comment below. Tell us which celebrity you like to cover Taiwan. And uh, don't forget to tweet at us. Our handle is Taiwan Insider. Anyway, until next week, guys, have a happy, happy Halloween, and we'll see you soon. Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Top German politicians and academics have been speaking out in favor of Taiwan. Does this signal a greater support for Taiwan in the incoming German administration? Well, today to speak with me about this is German political scientist based here in Taiwan at Danjiang University, Reinhard Biedermann. Um, it's so good to have you here with me today. Thank you for having me here, Natalie. So we've seen that actually the, the spokesman for the Social Democrats, which is the leading party um, in the German election, actually spoke out in support of Taiwan, saying that the Taiwanese should be able to determine their own future, um, that Taiwan is an important partner for Taiwan, especially in semiconductors. Do you think that this signals that we will see a more pro-Taiwan um, administration when they form their administration? I think so that uh, the incoming government, we do not know yet so far which government it will be, but probably led under the Social Democratic Chancellor Scholz. Social Democrats actually, they uh, do not have made a very strong position concerning to protect or support Taiwan. There are other parties in the potential government, namely the Greens and the Liberals, that uh, spoke much stronger out in favor of Taiwan. For the Social Democrats, we are not uh, so sure yet. Uh, so this is why it's difficult to uh, now make a statement about how the Social Democrats may work concerning Taiwan. However, what I think is that overall the, the long-term foreign policy of Germany since some 30 years always has been the assumption of uh, change through trade. And this change through trade assumption was supported by the Social Democrats but also by the Conservatives. By the Social Democrats because it reminds us about the 1970s East politic that when we do more trade with the Soviet Union and its allies then this will lead to a change in the Soviet Union and in its behavior to the West. And the Conservatives always assume that change through trade is a very good, let's say, excuse for doing more business. So the big two major big governmental parties in the last 30 years both supported uh, change through trade. And I think that will change um, no matter which government will be in power um, after the conclusions are made. I think that uh, the Social Democrats are particularly concerned about that we do not have change through trade, that the human rights situation in China is going in an opposite direction and not as the Social Democrats would like to see. And from a conservative position, the point is more that the economic relations between Europe, Germany and China are not developing in a way um, as they wish they, 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 they should be. So from both um, bigger parties in the government, we have uh, a new assessment of China. But we should not forget the smaller parties, especially the Liberals and the Greens, which have a stronger supporting role for Taiwan 
since a few years. Well, actually, China is Germany's largest trading partner. So what do you think that means for their China policy? Will it make them be afraid of being too pro-Taiwan? That's indeed a very big uh, dilemma for Germany. Because um, when the conflict between China and the United States is increasing, then, of course, the two most important trading partners for Germany right now, which is the United States and China, when they are in conflict and pressure put pressure on Germany to take sides, this is, of course, against German interests. On the other hand, um, the overall um, trade weight of China in Germany's trade is some 8%. So it's, it's not that big, it's 8%. Germany does more trade with Eastern and Middle European states, for instance. So with Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Germany does more trade than with China. Um, so probably, and this is also very important, since actually the more critical stance from Germany also comes or is influenced by the business community in Germany. So probably there is already an awareness in the German business community that um, the, you know, the economic trade relations, they, they won't be as smooth as they have been in the past. There will be some changes going on. So you mentioned the uh, choice between the U.S. and China. If Germany had to make a choice to side with one of these two superpowers, um, which do you think Germany would choose? Well, of course, Germany is a deeply Western country. It will, of course, be uh, leaning uh, to the United States side. And the German policies also um, promulgated in the Indo-Pacific guidelines are strongly promoting a free, open and Indo-Pacific strongly arguing that what China does in the South China Sea is against international law. Uh, the Germ German government also um, is aware about those um, airplane flights into the Addis of Taiwan and the German society as such is also nowadays better informed about Chinese policies and about the uh, Taiwanese situation than it was a few years ago. We have now frequently reports about Taiwan, about uh, Chinese aggressions against Taiwan, about Chinese um, policies in Xinjiang, about the Hong Kong problem, about South China Sea. So these are all issues where the Western uh, world, Europe and United States have very strong common positions. So if the situation between China and United States heats up more, um, then, of course, uh, the German position will be, uh, of course, together with the United States. But the German position will be to, to find a way that this kind of conflict will not heat up yet more, that there will be um, more, let's say, moderation and that the situation calms down. Do you think that Germany would assist in any way to help deter China from threatening Taiwan? Well, that's uh, very difficult question. Germany has no hard security uh, involvement in the South China Sea. So Germany is involved with the European Union in the ASEAN Regional Forum. Um, it is involved in certain projects about, about non-traditional security like um, anti-terrorism and those kind of things. But uh, Germany and the European Union as such don't have any major ships or military involvement in, um, in in the South China Sea. The UK a little bit and France a little bit, 
but this is incomparable to the to the United States presence. So from that point of view, um, there won't be any sort of military deterrence coming from the European Union or from Germany. However, uh, there may be political tools and economic tools, and those tools are partly now also in the making to, to protect Taiwan. And actually, that is also interesting, uh, Germany and Europe actually also want to learn from Taiwan, because Taiwan is, of course, uh, in, in a very dominant position to defend its democracy against um, Chinese political aggressions in terms of disinformation, in terms of cyber espionage, in terms of, of cyber attacks. And uh, Europe and Germany are affected, of course, by uh, similar attacks. And we believe that Taiwan really has uh, quite much experience in fighting off those attacks. So, so we can also learn from Taiwan. And um, I think this is also one aspect that shows that the value of Taiwan is also increasing for Europeans. Well, I know you've been watching German-Taiwan ties closely. What do you see for upcoming uh, German-Taiwan ties in, let's say, the coming year or so? Oh, this is a very difficult question because there are too many variables we can hardly uh, overlook right now. It depends, everything depends on China, how China reacts, whether China is increasing its aggressions. So when China is increasing its aggressions, is uh, more often sending airplanes into the Ardis and so on, then I think the German-European statements will become stronger. It is also possible in, in, the, in the middle run that, um, for instance, Germany yeah, and, and the European Union enact some sort of economic sanctions um, in, in some fields. I won't exclude it from right now. But for Germany, Taiwan is very important also from an economic perspective, of course. It's not only the trade balance we have. I think the EU and Taiwan trade between 50 and 60 billion euro per year. But it's also that Taiwan is very important in certain key sectors, especially when it comes to semiconductors. Our German car industries now, uh, they do not have enough semiconductors anymore. So we urgently need uh, semiconductors from, from Taiwan. So Taiwan is also geoeconomically important uh, for Germany and for, for the EU. And this, of course, also increases, let's say, the stakes for Germany and for the EU to support Taiwan stronger than in the past. So what role do you think Taiwan's semiconductor industry plays in its relations with Germany and with the EU? Well, we see it in the, in the report uh, of the European Parliament where um, the uh, semiconductor industries were mentioned. Also in the speech of Josep Borrell, um, this is the High Commissioner for Foreign Policy, of, of the, the High Representative of Foreign Policy of the European Union. He also strongly mentioned that. So when such issues are mentioned at a top political level, then they must be very important. So um, TSMC is indeed important. I think 50% of the semiconductors in, in Europe and Germany come from TSMC. Well, I know in 2018 you actually wrote an article in the European Foreign Affairs Review called Reimagining Taiwan. Tell us why you wrote that article. Well, first of all, I, I lived since a few years in Taiwan, and then I thought, of course, I should also, from time to time, do some academic work on EU-Taiwan relations. Um, 
my perspective then was that actually we very often in the West perceive Taiwan as um, a part of greater China. So this is the perspective that also uh, trade chambers of the European Union wanted to promote, uh, arguing that Taiwan would be a sort of jumping board um, for investments in China. But my perspective is that we should stronger take Taiwan as an asset in itself. So Taiwan is important. It's a democracy. It's a well-developed democracy. And we should also perceive Taiwan not only as having strong affiliations to China, but also perceive Taiwan as a Southeast Asian nation. So for sure, if, if Taiwan would be theoretically a fully recognized sovereign country, it would probably be part of ASEAN. And it has a Southeast Asian identity. It is um, a very important asset. Uh, together with Japan, with South Korea and ASEAN in uh, the Asia-Pacific. And I think simply to, to reimagine Taiwan as a, as a Pacific state uh, is important because it also shows that um, it has a strong role to play in our overall economic security. It's not only the EU-Taiwan economic relations, but Taiwan is also a part of, of supply chains, of identity in the South China Sea, and the European Union should stronger consider that. And I'm quite pleased that when I see the report of the European Parliament now, or when I read the new Indo-Pacific strategies, that the idea about like-mindedness and that Taiwan is also a part of these island and country groups is well received and also supported now by um, yeah, many European states. Well, it's great to see that you were pointing this out many years ago <laughs> and that uh, the EU and Germany um, is awakening more and more to the importance of Taiwan and showing their support for Taiwan. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I've been speaking with Reinhard Biedermann, a German political scientist at Danjiang University. Thank you for having me here. From a bar mitzvah at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem to a temple procession in Taipei. The people of our world are passionate about their beliefs. Are you listening? Tune in to the sounds of your world on Radio Taiwan International. You're listening to Radio Taiwan International. If you have any comments or suggestions about our programs, you can email us at rti at rti.org.tw. This is Highlights, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. When will Taiwan open up its borders? Well, that's a difficult question with a lot of answers, depending on what you define as open and who those borders might be open to. Health Minister Chen Shijong says health authorities won't consider relaxing quarantine rules until 70% of the population has had one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine, with at least 60% fully vaccinated. So when will that be? 
Well, Taiwan is already at 70% with one dose, so that target gets a tick. But right now, only 30% of people are fully vaccinated. The government says it will work towards reaching 60% by the end of the year. Is that realistic? Well, in the month of October, the percentage of people fully vaccinated has gone from 12% to 30%. At that rate, Taiwan's population could hit its target of getting 60% of people fully vaccinated in about 45 days, or a month and a half. So that puts us somewhere in mid-December. But bear in mind, that's just a ballpark estimate that assumes that the rate of second vaccination stays constant, which might not be the case. So far, Health Minister Chen Shilong has stayed tight-lipped about what changes could come in, but it looks like something is going to have to give when it comes to Lunar New Year. Chen says at least 31,000 people are set to come back to Taiwan at the end of January to celebrate the holiday with their families. The problem is, quarantine facilities are already almost at capacity. So where do people quarantine if everywhere is booked up? Well, health authorities say they're looking into a few different alternatives. One would be to allow some form of home quarantine. Another would be to shorten the quarantine period. The third option would be to waive quarantine entirely for certain travellers. And the final option authorities are discussing is issuing a temporary ban on entry for certain foreigners to free up space for returning Taiwanese. Chen says authorities are more likely to shorten the quarantine period or waive the quarantine requirement after the Lunar New Year. Now, the Central Epidemic Command Center is due to give its report on the Lunar New Year in the next week or so. So, till then, we'll just have to wait and see. programs, pictures, and more online at english.rti.org.tw. Check it out. For all your science and tech news, it's Stash Butler with The Download. Welcome to The Download from Radio Taiwan International, where we cover all the latest developments in science and technology. I'm your host, Stash Butler, and I'll be taking you through everything you need to know. Today, I continue my conversation with Dr. Alex Tichy of Academia Sinica. He tells me about how sensationalism erodes people's trust in science and why remaining open-minded is key to being an astronomer. All that coming up on The Download. I asked Dr. Tucci how the scientific community is responding to the issue of inaccurate reporting on their work. There's a lot of chatter, I guess, on Twitter between astronomers about how we handle all this sort of things. And astronomers need to guard against sensationalism and do our best. But we also don't get to proofread these articles, right? Astronomers be like, well, I kind of like to look over everything you're saying afterward. And journalists understandably push back against that. And they say, that's not how we do it around here. You know, I do my interview and then I write the article and the article is... Uh, what the article is, unless it's you know something totally egregiously uh, wrong about it, you don't get to kind of choose the the way it gets uh, covered. So I have a lot of sympathy for uh, science journalists uh, covering this stuff. There's no way that you can possibly get everything uh, accurate. 
Um, but understandably, I think it, it, it sort of can frustrate astronomers because it's a little bit of a game of telephone. And by and large, your work becomes what the articles say your work is. You know, most people don't read your journal article. Most people read what they saw on Universe Today or, or Space.com or CNN or New York Post. I mean, you know, go, you know, if something gets big enough, it gets covered all over the world, and you get to see in real time how kind of the claims get uh, confused, and and um, you know, when it comes to someone reporting for CNN, they are sort of piggybacking off of the reporting of somebody else, you know, and just down the line it goes, and so you know, it, there's pitfalls associated with this. I don't know what the solution is. <laughs> there's this sto story I didn't, I didn't check the precise kind of. I mean, I remember reading it, but I can't remember the precise the wording. It was about the kind of um, about a potential sort of di the story of the kind of Dyson sphere around an, a kind of exoplanet. Is that the one? Is that the story you're 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 referencing? Uh, that's a different one, but that is another example of um of uh, sort of things that got uh, sensationalized. I would say. Um, I suppose the Dyson sphere know. actually goes around a sun, doesn't it? It goes around a star. It was, it was like that's right. So, I, yeah, you're probably thinking of this thing that has been called Voyagin star or Tabby's star, um, where we saw this very unusual and very deep dimming and, and erratic dimming of this star. So I mentioned before that when a planet passes in front, we see maybe one percent or a tenth of a percent of the light blocked out. But this was seeing 10, 20 percent of the light blocked out, and it's very sort of erratic. Uh, uh, signals and so it was um, you know suggested somewhere along the line that maybe we are seeing some sort of giant techno uh, project some sort of uh, astro engineering thing and this is the signature I mean this is the signature that people have said for years when maybe we would see something like this astronomers tend to say well uh, maybe but uh, there's probably a more um, ordinary explanation and I think most astronomers in that case have said yeah it's probably dust there's a, a lot of dust uh, floating around this particular system, and it blocks out a lot of the light. You know, it's not uh, quite as, as sexy of an explanation, but but uh, that's probably what it is. Uh, what I was referring to is this interstellar object that came from, uh, you know, came from another place uh, outside of the solar system, called Oumuamua, and we could tell by the how fast it was moving that it just clearly is not from the solar system. And it was doing something very peculiar in that it was moving when it left. It was moving slightly faster uh, than you would expect for some dead rock just on some orbital or, you know, hyperbolic trajectory in this case. And so people were trying to understand, well, why is it moving differently than we expect it to? The natural explanation is that it is uh, something kind of like a comet, so it's shooting out jets of gas. Uh, as it sort of warmed up passing by the sun, it shoots out this jet and it, that speeds it up, right? Uh, the problem was that they didn't see any signatures of uh, this outgassing, they'd call it. And so it has certainly been a little bit of a puzzle, but one particular astronomer has uh, really uh, made a lot out of claiming that this is an interstellar a space probe, basically, that this is a that this is an alien ship, maybe a derelict uh, spaceship, but it is a spaceship. And, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with sort of speculating that that's, you know, it, maybe it could be, and then you investigate it. I don't have any problem with investigating it. Um, but uh, there have been a lot of papers and even a book now written about, yeah, this is a spacecraft. You know? And most astronomers say, no, that is not proved at all. And there still is probably an ordinary explanation. Uh, but this is a very exciting uh, possibility, of course. And so journalists 
at least for a while, have been giving this guy a lot of uh, airtime. And so astronomers are understandably, I think, uh, sort of bent out of shape about it, uh, getting way too much, uh, way too much oxygen based on the plausibility of that uh, explanation. <laughs> does, does, does that annoy you? I mean, I suppose, you know, it's kind of like, I suppose as an astronomer, you might feel that, you know, it's like, oh, we're doing all this hard kind of grunt work. And then, you know, maybe someone at some point just sort of accidentally mentions the possibility of aliens and then everyone just jumps on the story. Yeah, I think, it, you know, it's a balancing act when it comes to talking about extraterrestrial uh, intelligence or something like this. We shouldn't be ruling it out. I mean, just because it is um, sort of a, a wilder explanation doesn't mean it's not true. And so we have to kind of look at that uh, carefully as one, uh, one possible explanation. There's nothing wrong with looking at it. The problem, of course, is that uh, it, when it gets sensationalized in the media, then people uh, pick it up. You know, maybe they just saw the headline or they heard from their friend who saw the headline and uh, they'll say, oh, you know, I heard we discovered aliens. <laughs> you know, no, no. And what it does ultimately is, you know, in the short term, it erodes um, people's understanding of astronomy and, and, and these sorts of things. More broadly, it erodes trust in science uh, because someone will come out with a sensationalist claim and then another thing kind of knocks it down and so if the article gets written we discovered this thing and then next month so the article says ah oh, turns out we didn't discover this thing and people say oh those scientists they don't know what they're doing they're just making it up as, the, as, as it goes along or you know you take it as for example um medical reporting or or reporting on like a food science you know where you'll see someone say oh red wine is good for you and another study comes out and says red wine is bad for you and another study comes out and says oh actually it's good for you or red meat or you know on and on it goes that's part of the process right articles should be testing these sorts of uh, questions and if they get different answers then it means that uh, uh, more research needs to be done to properly understand this sort of thing but if the article comes out and says turns out red meat is good you know, and then another article says, turns out red meat is bad. People, again, just say, well, I don't know what to believe. They, they, they can't trust it anymore. And so, uh, you know, I think astronomers or scientists in general, we really value sort of our skeptical uh, way of looking at the world. And we think everybody should be, you know, super hard-nosed about things and saying, well, I really don't think that's proven or something like that. You know, maybe not everybody needs to be so uh, skeptical as astronomers. It's our job to be skeptical, and everybody else can just kind of read the article and be like, oh, okay, that's interesting, whatever, and go about their day. Uh, so I guess we get a little too worked up about some of these things getting misconstrued sometimes. But ultimately, I do think it is a, a danger, it's a worry for us to, to see these things get sensationalized and, and people getting misled in the process. That was Dr. Alex Tichy telling me why bad science journalism erodes people's trust in science and why good science means not ruling anything out, even the existence of aliens. And that's all we have time for this week. Next week, Dr. Tichy tells me how astronomers are heading to bars and pubs to spread the word about their scientific work. That's next week with me, Stash Butler, on The Download.
Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.